This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Today with Mark Drakeford, who is the Cabinet Secretary for Finance. Um, Mark, tell me about your political roots, because you're originally from West Wales, aren't you? Yes, I'm uh, from Carmarthen originally, and I suppose in terms of uh, political roots, you know, when you look back, maybe I was just lucky to be brought up in an era when politics was the stuff that people talked about all the time. So when I was 11 or 12, Gwynvor Evans won the Camarin by-election in 1966. And people on the playground in Camarin Grammar School, which I had just uh, arrived at, used to march around uh, the playground chanting political slogans. Um, so I was interested in politics from the very uh, Beginning was your family interested in politics? Not, but not particularly. Um, what was your What were your parents? Actually? So, um, well, my grandparents on one side were absolutely straightforward, liberal, Welsh-speaking, non-conformists. Um, I have a very early memory of my grandfather, who was a farmer, calling me out uh, of the farm to come and see uh, Megan Lloyd George. Uh, coming canvassing down the road in uh, in St Clair's, uh, and I remember him telling me that uh, nothing had been the same since Lloyd George himself had stopped uh, being prime minister. I think so. On that side, I would say you know there was there was an interest in politics and a straightforward understanding uh, of it. My father, who I don't think of as polit- very political when I was that age, but became radicalised by Mrs Thatcher. Uh, in his in his later life, but he would take me when I was in my early teens to eve of poll meetings in Kamala. In had a tradition that all political parties held an eve of poll uh, meeting, and my father would take me from one to the next. So I remember going, you know, around the town with him, and we'd just call in and we'd see what was going on and listen to somebody. So I suppose in that sense, he was interested enough to want to make sure that I knew what was uh, what was going on. So was it always Labour for you? Uh, for me, always Labour, yes. And consciously Labour, in that sense, because young people that I would have mixed with in Carmarthen were, on the whole, uh, nationalist. You know, very much speaking, uh, Plaid Cymru, a very big tide of Plaid uh, Cymru, Gwynville Evans, a very charismatic uh, figure. I remember going to the Irv Eisteddfod in Carmarthen in 1966, so this would be a matter of weeks, really, after he'd won uh, the by-election. And it's a full, you know, the tent is absolutely full. And Grover Evans is on uh, on the stage and he's talking in Welsh, uh, of course. But, you know, he, in some way he wasn't a hugely inspiring speaker 
always, but on that afternoon, I can see him in my mind's eye now that afternoon, and he's on the platform and, and he's saying to an audience who is very much on his side, he said, you know, the tide of nationalism in Wales is like the sea beating on the shore, and it's coming in, and it's coming in, and it's coming in. And by God, but then we got to the third one, the whole, the whole tent was on its feet and things, you know. So, so the, why Labour rather than Plaid? Um, because I think in the end, for me, the thing that really shapes people's lives is not the accident of geography, it's not where you happen to be born, but your relationship with the economy. So people's chances in life are economically uh, determined, and the chances of someone living in the Ely estate in Cardiff are more shaped by the same forces that shape someone living on an estate that's like it across our border than they are by the fact that they happen to be born in Wales rather than in England. So, you know, being Welsh matters a lot uh, to me. I, you know, I'm pleased to speak Welsh as much as I'm able. I feel like I've, you know, put my own political career very much into trying to do things in Wales. So I'm, I'm, I've, you know, that, that really does matter to me. But in the end, it's economics that shape people's lives, and that's you know, that's a labour analysis rather than a sort of nationalist analysis. So, going back to your education, then after finishing at the school, you then um, went on a tack which actually ended up with you becoming a social worker, didn't you? Yes, I did uh, by, by a very circuitous uh, route, uh, and again, you know, in some ways, I think I was very, very lucky. I, I was uh, still in that era where people thought that. Um, going to university was about getting an education rather than preparing you for for work. So uh, one of the more obscure uh, facts of uh, political life for me is that my, my degree, my first degree is in Latin. Uh, so I went and studied Latin at the University of Kent in Canterbury. I had only two criteria really about the university that I, I went to. I wanted to go to a new university. So I was, you know, attracted by that sort of radical edge of, uh, uh, of university life. And I wanted to go somewhere where there was a county cricket ground so I could watch cricket as well. So I ended up in Kent, in the University of Canterbury, um, with a very small number of other people who studied Latin. Um, and you know, by the time I'd finished there, you, you would not necessarily think that people with Latin degrees that we were being cried out for by industry. Um, but I'd seen an advert in The Guardian, um, stereotypi- stereotypically, um, in my third year there, um, which was inviting people to apply to be sponsored by the Home Office to become probation, a probation officer. And that's what I ended up doing. Ah, yes. And, of course, then, in due course, you made something of a further transition to uh, the world of academia. Yes. Well, I, worked in, I came to Cardiff in 1979. I worked for 10 years in, in the probation office. Uh, here, which was far longer than I had probably originally thought uh, that I would. Um, I then worked for Bernardo's for a number of years, running a community development project in Ely, uh, in Cardiff. I'd always worked in Ely as a probation officer. In those days, the way the probation office in Cardiff was organised was geography. You know, you you joined a team that covered a particular part uh, of the city, and my part of the city was uh, the West team, which mostly, in my case, meant Ely and Cardiff. I always loved working there. Um, and I, I, in my probation job, I always believed in going to see people rather than asking people to come to see you. So I, I didn't sit in the office much 
uh, in Westgate Street, I used to go out to knock people's doors and sit in their front rooms because I thought you learned so much more about people if you saw them in their own of a habitat, uh, really. And because I'd worked there for those 10 years, a job came up in Bernardo's where I used to spend time every week in any case, uh, you know, where people could drop in to see me. Um, and loved that job uh, as well, working on the estate. By the time I'd been there, we had children had arrived and all that sort of thing. And I needed a, I needed a job where your ability to put some boundaries around it was a bit clearer than in the job I was in. And a, a job came up in Swansea in the university there, teaching people who were going to be probation officers and doing social policy as well. And again, I was lucky enough to, to get that. And yes, I'd always written. I'd written stuff, you know, in journals and, and things when I was a probation officer. So I'd always had an interest in the sort of, you know, the sort of research side of that job and working in the university allowed me to do more of that while keeping I always practiced as well I always spent uh, half a day a day a week continuing to work in in youth justice so that if you're teaching people I always thought it was very important to be able to say to them you know and when I was doing this last week you know this is what I found and this is what I did because I think in those are very applied disciplines your credibility with students and things if you haven't done the job yourself for a long time, I, I think it's hard to persuade people that, you know, that they will listen to you um, attentively. So I always try to do a bit of both. And then uh, in due course, you became uh, effectively a professor of social policy at Cardiff University, mm. didn't you? Was that a, a bit of a further move, would you say? Yes. I, when, when I moved to Swansea to work, I thought we, I thought we would all move, you know, the family. We would move west and, and go back uh, closer to where my, my parents were still living and so on, and uh, it didn't work that way, but for, for mundane sort of reasons, really, that, you know, you, you, we often could see places we'd like to live, so, but by the, by the time you've lived somewhere for, by then, getting on for 20 years, you know, you've got a dentist, you've got a doctor, you know the man you phone when the car goes wrong, and it was, it was those sort of things that, in the end, made us think, oh, actually, we're tied into the, the place we live in to try and uproot ourselves and build all this up somewhere else again. And the job came up in, 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 in Cardiff. And again, I was lucky enough, I applied for that and moved across. And then um, I worked in the university there for full time for uh, a number of years. And then in the year 2000, um, when Rodri Morgan became the first minister, I'd obviously owned Roger for quite a while. Because you were in the uh, Labour Party for I was quite a long period. Party. I, it's one of the things we used to tease him about, Julie Morgan and myself. And Julie and I both became councillors uh, on South the Morgan County Council in 1985. So we'd both been elected before he was. So we used to occasionally tease him yeah. about that because he became 1987. I was his agent um, in the, around the 92 election. Um, so I, I knew him very, uh, very well by then. And when he became first minister, he um, he phoned up and said, "You know, would you be interested in coming to work uh, as part of the special advisor team here, specialising in sort of social policy issues?" Because Rodri's idea of special advisors was different, I think, to the standard one. Um, the first thing he wanted somebody to to be good at was the topic that they would be advising in. He always felt that ministers needed an alternative source of relatively expert advice to that that they would get from 
civil servants. Mm-hmm. Not because civil service advice is bad, but because you need a bit of attention. If you've only got one source of advice, you quite quickly become captured by it. And he wanted special advisors who were able to say to ministers, well, actually, you know, there is a different way of thinking about that or a different way of doing that. So he was interested in you, your expertise first, and then he wanted to know that your politics were sympathetic to that. To the, you know, to the party and to the cause of the government as well. And so it wasn't difficult for him to persuade you across? No, no, I, you know, it, was, it was a great opportunity uh, for me. I'd been a candidate in 1999 for the Labour Party. Very different to uh, as I have since been. Back in 1999, I really wanted to be an Assembly member in a personal sort of way. I really wanted to be part of that very first part of devolution. I'd been part of the campaign over the years. I chaired the South Morgan Parliament for Wales campaign. You know, I'd spoken on lots of platforms and places trying to persuade people that uh, a devolved institution for Wales was was what we needed. And I really wanted to be part of you know the ground floor of it and things. And I didn't uh, I didn't win a seat in Cardiff Central where I stood uh, at the time. And um, this was a different way, really, of getting back into that early story. And so, yeah, uh, I was offered the chance. The university was very generous uh, to me. I taught one day a week. I spent Fridays always in the university teaching and supervising uh, research and so on. And Monday to Thursday, I worked in uh, down in the Bay. And of course, you, to a degree, have been credited with this um, phrase which became, uh, as it were, yeah. totemic for uh, Rodri's period as the First Minister, uh, clear red water, yeah. and they were talking about the clear red water between his administration in Cardiff and the administration of Tony Blair, the new Labour administration in London. Yes. Um, to what extent were you responsible for that? Well, Sparing I, your bushes? I, thank you. Um, I've read Rodri's account uh, of it in, in his book, of course. I, I probably have a variation uh, of my own on, on, on the, the story. Rodri was always incredibly careful about uh, his relationship with, with Blair because um, he was always concerned that if he said something that was critical, uh, no, no, if he said something that was positive about the policies that he was trying to pursue in Wales, that the headline would always be Morgan attacks Blair or Morgan falls out with Blair. It was always being played out in that sort of personal clash sort of way. So he would strike out things that I'd written, you know, that he was that he felt would, would be vulnerable to that sort of um, interpretation. But, you know, obviously discussing it with him, I think he came to the view that going into the 2003 election, first assembly election after the very first one, that it was important for Welsh Labour to have a distinctive personality of its own and a distinctive reputation in people's minds. And we were incredibly lucky in having Rodri there because he had that reputation already in people's minds, didn't he? You know, one of the things he was always very determined and I think distinguish him from the approach that Scottish colleagues took, is he always wanted it to be clear in people's minds that it was perfectly possible to be Welsh and to be Labour, and that you didn't cede the Welsh identity to the nationalist cause. And so keeping Welsh and Labour close together in people's minds was always really important for him, and therefore we had to say a few things that gave some substance to that. 
Um, he was scheduled to make a speech in Swansea um, in the end of 2002, where I felt it was an opportunity for him to set out that stall, really, to set out the, what the principles underlying a Welsh Labour approach uh, would be. And the clear red water phrase came up uh, in that. And yes, I probably didn't write it down uh, for him, but uh, he he used it and you know it was his phrase uh, from there on. And actually, you know, I, when I look back, I think it, it was quite a defining moment and um, did help to just sort of, you know, consolidate in people's minds that idea that if we were voting Labour in a Welsh uh, election, you were voting for a version of Labour that was close to the way in which people in Wales thought about what the Labour Party ought to be about. And part of it is to do with the fact that um, there should be an element of universality of benefits yeah. so that everyone gets a buy-in to the yeah. welfare state rather than just seeing it as something for Absolutely. poorer people. That's, yeah. that's a very crucial yeah, part of it. You know, the, the very first... The, the two first things that he said in that speech are, first of all, that Welsh Labour came from a tradition which believed that good government could be good for you. So, you know, Mrs Thatcher's belief was government did best when government did least. You the know, Nicholas that, Ridley idea yeah, about just right. having yeah. one council meeting a year to, yeah, to give up contracts. contracts. Yes, yeah. the mm. government gets in the way of things, you know, that government is the problem, not the solution. And, you know, the Labour tradition is is that collective effort... Um, channel through government when it's done well allows everybody to do better and he was very wanting to put that on the record and then the second point is the one that you said you know that there's a fault line in politics as well between people who believe that the way to organize things is on a means-tested uh, basis uh, why should uh, uh, a duke pay more than a dustman that, that sort of thing you know so you focus the money you've got and the, uh, the resources you've got on those who need it the most and other people look after themselves, or you believe that the way to organise things is through universal services, because in universal services, everybody's got a stake in making them as good as they can be. People who are well-informed and well-articulate and can make the case for change, as well as people who struggle to get their voice heard. And you know, in, in social policy, which of course, as you said, I taught, there was a well-known slogan that services reserved for poor people very quickly become poor services uh, because nobody's watching now to see how good they are and so Rodri was always very clear that you know where we could and it's not always easy with money being short that you preferred universal services so when we abolish free prescriptions or when we abolish prescription charges they become free for everybody when you provide pre-breakfast in primary schools you don't say why are they only free for poor families, you know, other people can afford to pay, why don't you charge them? Well, Roger was very clear, you know, he didn't want the stigma uh, of that, but he also wanted a universal service where parents who could afford and couldn't afford had an equal stake in making that uh, service as good as it can be. And we tried to pursue that tradition, I think, across the 20 years of devolution. I suppose it's also to do with the fact that um, uh, there's a view that there is a virtue in uh, regulation uh, because since the 1980s, it's become increasingly um, populist, um, from a populist view to be expressed from right-wing ideologues, yeah. that 
uh, a lot of um, regulation is just red tape, which we don't really need, and that actually formed quite a large part of the narrative of the yes. of the Leave campaign Absolutely. during the referendum, and that's something yes. that you would be steadfastly opposed to. Yeah, no, you know, this idea that what you should be doing is getting government off the back of the people and uh, you know bonfires of regulations and things. That's where Grenville Tower uh, takes you. That, that's where that cast of mind uh, ends up. Uh, is in that sort of disastrous result where the public interest has not been properly protected, where the rules that you know make things better for us all have been neglected, uh, and so on. So, you know, we have never been in favour of having rules for rules' uh, sake or wanting to tie people up in you know petty uh, restrictions uh, and so on. That's not what it's about at all. But it is about making sure that where you've got other powerful forces at play, uh, regulation is there to make sure that the public interest is protected and that people who don't have power and authority in other ways are able to make sure that their interests are not overridden or neglected. Uh, so proper regulation, yes, absolutely. It has a very important part to play in making sure that the interests of the less powerful are you know, well articulated and given some force. And I say, you know, you, you can see today, and you can see it in the opposite side of the Leave campaign, that I think lots of the people who uh, ended up voting to leave were people who felt that somehow the state had given up defending their interests and stepped back from some of those ways of making sure that there was a more level playing field in our society and that allowed others to escape from the rules that uh, you know, other people have to live uh, by and that this was unfair and that they wanted to register their protest at the way that the world had, had headed. So uh, you then really enter the fray after Rodri stands down, stands down as First Minister in 2009, mm. um, steps down from the Assembly, you get selected. When you got selected as the candidate um, with the almost certain knowledge that you were going to become the AM. What approach did you adopt? What did you think that you would be able to achieve? Well, um, I was a very ambivalent uh, candidate. Um, compared to 1999, as I said to you, I really want, in a personal way, I wanted to be part uh, of it. By 2010, I'd had that huge privilege of spending 10 years you know, at the very centre of the first period of devolution. And, I was much less certain then that in a personal way that I wanted to um, throw my hat into the ring and, and so on. And in a way, I think the most decisive argument in my mind at the time was is that I, I, I didn't want to wake up three years later and think to myself, well, what if, you know, if I had tried, what would have happened and so on. And getting selected and getting elected, it, it's it's a pretty tough path by itself and Cardiff West as you say you know it's other than one election it's voted Labour since 1945 so there will be inevitably a lot of interest in obtaining the Labour nomination here so that wasn't going to fall into anybody's lap you had to work hard to uh, to get it and then you had to work hard in the election itself because Rodri cast a very big shadow um, and anybody coming after him would have to work hard to try and get the message over to people that you know he wasn't the candidate anymore and you were going to be uh, in, their, in their place. But once, I, once I'd made the decision that I was going to try it, you've got to do it for real and you've got to work hard at it. And what I think 
you know, without sounding too pious about it, which you can fall into that trap if you're not careful here. I think the reason that I decided I would is that I felt I'd spent 10 years learning what it was to be uh, an effective assembly member, and in particular to be what it was to be an effective minister. You know, I've worked with lots of ministers and everybody does the job differently, but if you've had the privilege of being in the middle of it, you know, I felt like maybe I ought to try and offer something of that back uh, if I could, if I was in the position uh, to do it. And uh, as it happened, uh, that is how it worked out. And obviously, without being presumptuous, um, I mean, I have to say that I personally assumed that uh, when you were elected, it wouldn't take uh, enormously long time before you were in the um, in, in government, as opposed to being a backbencher. And how do you see the roles that you've performed uh, since getting into the cabinet? And what difference do you think you've tried to make? And to what extent do you think you've um, been successful? Well, maybe I'll just say one thing first, which is that um, I'm I'm really grateful uh, that the first thing I did in the Assembly uh, was to be not in the government. Uh, I don't know I would have said that to you, you know, in the first couple of weeks when it happened that way, but when I look back, I think I learnt a huge amount about that side of the Assembly's work, which I wasn't so familiar with. You know, I'd, I'd been in there on the fifth floor, as they say, throughout the whole time. So I knew the Assembly through the lens of government, and I didn't have anything like uh, as good an appreciation of the jobs that people who are not in the government do, and the work that committees do, and all of that. And the first two years I was in the Assembly, that's what I did. And uh, I, to my, probably too, slightly to my surprise, I found that I enjoyed it enormously. Uh, I really enjoyed chairing the health uh, committee, you know, and uh, and I, I hope that the fact that I had those that two years has helped me, you know, to to understand the way that people who are not in the government come at things better than I would have done if I'd not had that experience. Going into the government, uh, I went in as the health minister, which you know is a what was a huge thing to do, and for a for a little while, I I did feel, you know. But I wasn't sure whether I was up to doing all of this. That you know, it, it's a bit overwhelming being the health minister. I became the health minister at the end of a very tough winter, which wasn't over. It was in it was in March. I was taken early on by Dr. Chris Jones, who is the who is the chair of Comtaf Health Board, out one night to visit A and E departments, who were under enormous pressure. I mean, it's very reminiscent of how things are uh, just now. Um, and you know, feeling that the the system was struggling in some places to you know provide the service that we would want to uh, provide. So my memory of those early weeks is really f f you know feeling that I was uh, having to work very hard to stay on my feet uh, in all of this. After that, um, once I, once I had a bit, you know, I felt that my job was to do two or three things really. One was to speak up for the health service. I've never believed the best way to improve public services is to beat them with a stick as hard as you can uh, all the time. And, you know, and, and to be constantly thinking that the job of the minister is to be on the back of the service that you're in charge of. Um, my view, particularly in the health service, was, was that it was full of people who work incredibly hard, um, who give way over the odds, 
um, and you know, live in a service that's been starved of uh, what it's needed since 2010. And my job was somehow to speak up for them and to let them know that you know the minister in charge of it was on their side uh, and wanted to try and show them that they were valued and what they did was recognised and that we were trying our best to mobilise whatever help uh, we could. And with a lot of help from Jane Hutt, who was the finance minister at the time, the second half of that assembly term, we did manage to put more money into the system. So that was one thing. But I also wanted to try to bring a sense to the system of how it could shape its own future. So, you know, I talked a lot of the time about a prudent uh, health system, a prudent healthcare uh, approach in which we all have to make an effort to make sure that harm that need never happen um, is diminished in the health service. Because so much of what the health service deals with is the consequence of choices that people make, that if they'd made them differently, things wouldn't have... This is individual choices. Yes, individual. So the Caffini cohort study, which you you would be familiar with, I know, which is a fantastic study of 40 years following the health of men who started in their early middle age and are well in their 70s and 80s now, and it's brilliant when you have a chance to meet people who've been on that study all the way through. It looked at what happened if men added simply one extra healthy behaviour to what they did. So they looked at five so basic things. Did people smoke? Did they drink to excess? Did they take exercise? Did they eat uh, a healthy diet and so on? And if people over that uh, 40-year period just added one thing in on that side, what a difference it made to their chances of heart disease in later life, cancer in later life, dementia, astonishingly, you know, high impact on people's risk of uh, dementia. And the Cavilli Court study just sort of emphasised for me that if you could persuade people to make different choices, then their own futures will be better safeguarded. But the health service would not end up being overwhelmed by levels of diabetes, for example, uh, that could be avoided if people did things differently. So as well as wanting to be on the side of the service and speaking up for it and so on, I wanted to try to give people in the service a sense that there was a different recipe out there that we could work on together, that we should regard the people using the service as equal partners in that. I always say to doctors, or I'm clearly preaching at them still, that you know, the first question they should not ask people when they come through the door is, what can I do for you today? Because that question invites the patient to hand the problem over to the professional. And then, you know, so all the power is on the side of the desk of the professional, and the person on the other side of the desk is regarded as this, you know, a problem to be solved. And I always say the question we should ask is, what can we do today? Let's put the problem in the middle of the table and think, what can I do? But what can you do as well? What contribution are you going to make? What contribution am I going to make? Both of them equally valuable, both of them different. And to reshape the relationship in the health service in that way so the patients are thought of as assets, people who can make a contribution, not just people who've got problems that we, we are there to put right for them. You're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's quite a long time, in fact it's since 1963, that uh, Sir Richard Dole 
published research which indicated a link between uh, very serious health conditions and smoking. Uh, do you think that it's unfortunate that there are still so many people who are smoking when one walks around Cardiff and in other parts of Wales? Um, I'll put it to you the opposite way, really, because I think that the really big story um, in smoking is just what a transformation there's been in my lifetime over it. I was really struck by, by this back in the summer. I was in Ely. I was at the Ely Festival. I was you know, behind the, the Labour Party stall on the field uh, as, uh, as you are. And I can tell you, I, I, you know, I've, I've been to Ely Festival for more than 30 years. And if I'd been there in the 1980s, almost everybody on that field would have been smoking. And people would have been smoking in the tea tent and they'd been smoking where children were. And, and somebody came up to the stall and they were smoking. And I could see everybody, oh, there's somebody smoking. And I mm. said to a couple of others, let's, let's just go and stand and let's scan the field and see if we can see anybody else on the field who is smoking. And actually, it was really hard to see somebody. So, of course, there are far too many people still smoking. And it's, a, it's awful when you see young people being drawn into it, although the percentage of young people who are smoking in Wales is the lowest it's been ever since we've collected uh, figures. And there's a cultural revolution happening in smoking, isn't there, where people do smoke, but it's not socially acceptable in the way that it once was. There's also this um, uh, issue relating to um, e-cigarettes, or referred to as vaping, yeah. and yeah. Um, uh, I think you came across quite a bit of um, resistance to the idea of banning sure. that in public places. I mean, yeah. I've written about this myself and I was firmly behind the initiative that you were taking because mm. I, do, I do see it as a, as a gateway. I also think that the um, research that has been done, uh, uh, some of the research that, is, that has been done has been underestimated uh, in terms yes. of the um, impact that uh, nicotine addiction yes. has on yep. people's health. Absolutely. Um, and yet there is uh, uh, something where the um, uh, companies that produce these products are trying to say that they are much healthier than conventional cigarettes and that uh, really you know, they should be able to be in the public domain uh, like yes. things used to be before there was a smoking ban. Do you still feel strongly uh, yeah, about no, that? I, I'm still exactly of the view that I, I was when I was health minister. And I guess the single most disappointing thing that uh, happened uh, in my time uh, was to lose that public health bill on the very last day um, and over an incident that you know should never have been allowed to derail such a very very important piece of legislation that had been painfully put together over over years of work. Were you cross with that assembly? Um, I, I wish he hadn't said what he uh, what he'd said. I thought the reaction to it was completely disproportionate given what was at stake but the, the assembly was in that very febrile period immediately before an election you know, there was no there was not another day that we could if we'd had one more week we would have rescued it undoubtedly but it was all at the you know 11th hour and 59th uh, minute so I, I I was you know I did regret what he said definitely but I did think that the reaction to it was well was you know, completely disproportionate to to the to the offence, given what the prize was there. And you referred earlier to the research that you know was carried out in the nineteen fifties and into the nineteen sixties, which demonstrated the link between lung cancer uh, and smoking. 
tobacco companies went on for years and years after that, claiming that that link hadn't been proven or that they could produce low-tar cigarettes that had eliminated uh, the danger or that they were filters that they'd invented that meant it was None of that was true. They knew it wasn't uh, true, but their commercial uh, interests drove them to continue to do that. And it's commercial interests that drive e-cigarettes. Um, we were very clear. We never denied that for people who were heavy smokers, if you could move to an e-cigarette, that was better for your health than what you were uh, doing. And nothing we would have done would ever have prevented people using e-cigarettes in that way. What I didn't want to happen was they become normalised and a gateway. And if you look at the advertising that the companies use, it is no doubt at all. It is designed to draw young people uh, into using them. The effect of nicotine addiction on people in their adolescent years is worse than at any other time in your life because your brain is developing in a particular way and the nicotine addiction distorts uh, that and pulls you in and before you know where you are, people who otherwise would have avoided the enormous harm. Uh, one person out of every two who smokes will die of, will die of, that, uh, of that reason. And the thought that there are children in Wales today who are being drawn into that habit where we could have helped to avoid it, uh, I think it, 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 it rankles me uh, a lot. You are the Finance Minister and uh, in that capacity you're more aware than anyone else of the constraints that the Welsh Government is under uh, as a consequence of austerity. Um, to what extent would you say that you have been, and the Welsh Government generally, has been hobbled in uh, what it wants to do so far as improving the prosperity of people in Wales? Well, yeah. austerity is a failed, flawed policy. It's a political choice, not an economic uh, necessity. And here's the difference, really. Every government in the United Kingdom from 1945 right up to 2010 said that as the economy grew, so public services would share in that growth. If the economy grew by 1%, then you'd put a 1% uh, addition into your public services. Mrs Thatcher did that in every year that she was Prime Minister. In some years, she put more into public services, even than the growth in the uh, economy. Uh, if our budget in 2018-19 was simply where it was a decade earlier, if it hadn't grown at all, None of that had happened. We'd be a billion pounds better off today than we actually are. And if we had simply grown in line with the economy, we would have many billions of pounds more to spend on vital services here in Wales. And this is the only time, this is the only decade since 1945 where that has been denied uh, to public services and to people who rely on them. So undoubtedly... Um, our ability to do the things which we know we would like to do and we think need to be done in all sorts of ways has been hamstrung and held back uh, by that. Our job has been to try to, uh, you know, socialism is the language of priorities, all of that sort of thing. It's, you know, we've got to apply that even more um, determinedly in this difficult period and to try to sort of, you know, be imaginative where we can. Again, Jane had my predecessor, you know, did a, a great deal to introduce some very creative ways of providing capital expenditure 
in Wales through local authorities, through housing associations and so on. And um, the deal we've done on what's called the fiscal framework, the fact that we've got tax raising powers now coming to Wales. Um, if you take the, the deal we did over the extra 5% uh, rise we get through Barnet and our tax raising powers, um, we'll be £100 million better off in revenue over the next three years than we otherwise would have done. And okay, it's only th it's only a hundred million. It's for everything. It's over three years. But when every penny really matters, and every mil you know the single million you can find to do something that really uh, makes a difference, then all of that counts. So we've been able to give one small example, which is consistent with what I said earlier. Um, we have been able to find half a million pounds this year, next year, the year after, for um, a scheme that in school holidays children who we know otherwise would go hungry because there are no school meals provided in that long summer uh, holidays and families who really struggle. Uh, we have school enrichment programs as they're called where those children can come into school, they can get a meal, but they get lessons as well and they get people to come to sport and other activity uh, with them. And we're gonna do that right across Wales in a universal uh, way as best uh, we can. The way we try to do things, and it's an unsung story in many ways, is that Labour governments and governments we've had with others successively over the period of devolution have used our budgets in a way that leaves money in people's pockets, that across their bo the, or border people have to find themselves. So if you have free prescriptions, if you're somebody who works in you know 16 hours a week in a minimum wage uh, occupation and you need a couple of prescriptions every week for a chronic condition that's 16 pounds every single week that you're paying across the border that you don't pay here that money stays in your pocket and you can use it to manage other difficult things we've sustained the um, council tax uh, reduction scheme here in wales if you're someone on a bare-line benefit. You don't pay any council tax at all. In England, that same family, on average, is having to find £140 uh, a year. And in many places, they have to find a lot more than that. Than that. And the school holiday programme is the same. You know, if someone, if a family are able to come into the school uh, and get a, a proper meal in the middle of the day, that's money left in the pocket of the family to do other things. So Barbara Castle, one of my political uh, heroes used to call this the social wage. Uh, the things that governments can do that leave money in the pockets of uh, people. And, I, you know, I've, I've seen some quite sort of, you know, plausible uh, accounts that say that depending on a family circumstance and what you put in and so on, the families who are on the margins of managing, you know, they've probably got about £1,000 in their pockets in Wales as a result of things that the Welsh Government has done that if you lived somewhere else in the same circumstances, you'd be having to pay out £1,000. That's £20, you know, every week. And if you're really struggling, that's the difference between putting food on the table. In my surgeries that I do with Kevin Brown and my colleague here, we have people who come through our door on a, on a Saturday morning telling us that they haven't eaten since Wednesday. And it's often women, and it's women who are feeding children and not, not eating... Uh, themselves um, and you know the social wage is about trying to find doing what we can with our budgets to push back on those incredibly difficult sets of circumstances 
Now, after a few years when uh, there have been quite a number of national elections in Wales, both at uh, Westminster level and uh, at the Assembly, we're not due to have another election until 2021. Uh, however, um, there has been a presumption for quite a while that Carwin Jones would be standing down um, after 10 years in 2019. There are other uh, events that could potentially intrude on the matter uh, to bring the, the stepping down of Carwin uh, um, uh, sooner. Um, I know because I've spoken to people uh, who have um, made representations to you that um, there are people who think that you should stand to be Carwin's successor uh, and that uh, up until um, very recently um, you were quite reluctant to contemplate it at all um, and yet I believe that there may be the possibility that you may now be considering um, such a, an effort. What, what, what's, what's your position on that? Okay, Mark? well let me say two basic things and then I'll try and respond to the specific one. First of all, uh, I think I, I feel like I am in the luckiest position you, you could be uh, in politics, in the sense that I've no ambition in politics at all. I've had an incredibly good run through it. Um, if I didn't do the job that I'm doing today, uh, tomorrow, um, there are still lots of things that I would want to be able to get on and do, political things that when you're a minister you're not able to talk about because there's somebody else's responsibility and so on. So uh, I'm in that really lucky position that I, I don't, you know, I've got other things I could do and would want to do and so on. So I'm, I've got no, um, I'm not driven as some people are. It's not a bad thing to be driven by ambition. We need people who've got uh, ambition, but I'm free of, of that. Yeah. So, and the, you know, and the second thing to say is that there's no vacancy uh, for this post. Uh, we've got a First Minister, he's every intention uh, of carrying on. My job as a Cabinet member is to support him uh, in that, which I do uh, strongly and so on. So, you know, I think a lot of this sort of talk is the sort of talk that people who've got an interest in, you know, the personalities of politics like to uh, enjoy uh, having. Um, so. Um, do I want to be First Minister? No, I don't. Um, am I ambitious to be uh, First Minister? No, I'm not. Am I doing things to plan to be First Minister? I'm certainly uh, not. Does that mean, you know, that I'm saying in absolutely no circumstances would I ever think of doing it? Well, I think that's foolish as well in politics to, 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 to be as definitive uh, as that. If there were circumstances when because it was the right thing, you know, to do, that somebody needed to step in and, and help out and do things. I'm not gonna say I wouldn't be willing to, you know, I'm ruling all of that out, but that, those are the circumstances that I've ever said I would be willing to think uh, about it. Uh, and I'm not willing to think about it in any other set of circumstances. Because a number of people have said to me that uh, looking at the possible successors to Carwin, uh, they do think that um, the background that you have and that the contribution that you've made in government would qualify you to be a good successor. Well, that, you know, that's very nice of people um, when they uh, do say that, and yeah, people do, do say that uh, to you. Um, but as I say, uh, there's no vacancy for the job, and I hope there won't be a vacancy uh, 
for the job and you know my efforts are all put into trying to help the first minister in in what is always an incredibly demanding uh, and recently you know even more difficult uh, job if circumstances uh, arose where um, somebody was needed and I and people felt that there was something I could do I'm not saying to them look I'm willing to think about it but I hope it doesn't happen I don't want it and I'm certainly not working for it to happen biggest challenge facing the UK and Wales is Brexit. I know that you're a supporter of uh, Jeremy Corbyn, essentially. Jeremy Corbyn, um, I think, has perhaps annoyed some of his supporters by uh, seeming to turn his back on the idea of a soft Brexit and by seeming to say that um, it's going to be the case that we're out of the single market and out of the customs union. Um, do you think that Labour should be more robust uh, in its position and should be arguing in favour of uh, retaining um, essentially membership of, uh, of both those bodies? I, I want to acknowledge the really difficult job that people in charge of the UK Labour Party have over this issue when you know they will know as you will know that many Labour MPs represent areas where people voted decisively to leave uh, the European Union and it is not credible for the leadership of the party to just act as though those people's views don't matter to the party they they clearly uh, do and here in Wales as you know we've always said as a government we're not interested in the fact of Brexit Anymore. We're not focused on that. The, there was a referendum and people decided we're focused on the form of Brexit. Now, that's where I think there is more ground uh, to be gained uh, at the national level. As a government here in Wales, we are clear we need full and unfettered access to the single market and we need to be members of a customs union. You can't be members of the customs union because that's only available to people who are members of the European Union. So I know it's all very semantic, but... You know, it's still true that you can't be a member of a club. You can't be half in a club. You're either members of it and then you're members of it, or you have different arrangements from outside. We are very committed, because the Welsh economy relies on it, to the closest possible relationship with our nearest and biggest and most important market after we leave the European Union. And that means we need to use positive language about how we can remain as closely allied as we can with the single market so that the Welsh exporters don't face tariff and non-tariff uh, barriers. And where we recognise that the markets that we sell into, you know, there's a, there's a rule, isn't there, in the economy, trade halves as distance doubles. So the further you are away from a market, the less likely you are to be able to have significant trading relationships with them. The European Union is our, the market on our doorstep. It matters to us hugely. The idea that a Pacific Rim uh, arrangement is good any way to be able to compensate for a hard Brexit in which we leave the European Union with all those things fractured and all the barriers to trade rearing up in front of us. It's fanciful and it's harmful, deeply harmful to Wales. And you know, we, we work with our colleagues uh, in the Parliamentary Labour Party to try and get them to emphasise uh, those things while understanding that they have to listen attentively and respectfully to those many people who are Labour Party supporters uh, who take a different view of these things. 
I think that the European Union has made it absolutely clear that we can only have such a close relationship uh, with the single market and the customs union if we are prepared to accept uh, free movement. Well, you know that the Welsh Government has published our paper called Fair Movement uh, of People. Um, I think the model we describe could be acceptable to the European Union. We'd have to make the argument powerfully and we'd have to back it up and so on. But what we describe there is not very different to what happens already in some other nation states. Because what we say is that we need people to come to Wales. We celebrate the fact that we are lucky enough to attract people from elsewhere to come and make their futures part of our future. And we have businesses and public services and universities who would not be able to go on doing what they do if we weren't able to continue to attract those people. But maybe we can tie people coming to Wales more closely to having a job ready to come to. And we certainly need to do more to put proper protections in place for those people who are trying to get into the labour market and who think that their chances have been compromised by people being able to be brought across uh, from other parts of Europe to be exploited here. So people who are employed in Wales who don't have proper minimum uh, wages, who don't have labour protections and so on. So our, our document tried to put those things together, encourage people to come here where there are jobs that we need to uh, see filled, strengthen labour protections at the bottom end of the market so that people are clear that free movement is not about movement to exploit and to diminish opportunities for people who are already here. We think that's a saleable proposition to people locally and to people in the European Union. And that would allow us, because we would be close enough to the four freedoms then, for the European Union to agree that the single market proposition and the customs union proposition could still be available to us. Theresa May um, hasn't exactly seized the opportunity that you've presented it with, but do you think there's a chance that with her government not having an overall majority and there being a certain number of Tory rebels, that that could be achieved? Well, you know, we'll, we'll, history will uh, write it in the end, but if I look back at 2017, then what I see is at the beginning of the year, uh, Mrs May drove the Brexit bus at high speed at the very edge of the precipice. She said in her Lancaster House speech, no to the customs union, no to the single market, no to freedom of movement, no to the ECJ, no to paying money into the budget, all of those sort of hard uh, edge lines. And the, the whole of 2017 was about the rest of us having to inch by painful inch push the bus back from the precipice that she parked it uh, on. So that by the time the stage one agreement was reached with the European uh, Union in December, Lo and behold, we are paying money uh, in, as we should, for bills which you know, properly fall uh, to us. The ECJ is going to be part of our landscape for many years European uh, of Justice. to come. Yes, European uh, Court of Justice is going to be part of our judicial landscape uh, into the future. And the other things that are in that package are much closer to the position that we articulated in our paper back in uh, January 2017 than she said out in her speech. So I think if the tide has moved in any direction, it's moved in the direction that the Welsh Government uh, has preferred. And the job of 2018 is to continue to try to push that tide further and faster. Thanks very much indeed, Mark Drakeford. 
Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week. Mm-hmm.